On this episode of AvTalk, we review the order book from the Farnborough Air Show to see who bought what and how many. Airbus rebrands the C-Series. We climb aboard the A330neo for a route-proving flight, and two Air China pilots are now out of a job. Hello and welcome to episode 36 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with... Hello, Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, Ian. Hello, Jason. How are you? I am well. How are you? I'm doing very well. I survived leaving the house. You did. We had a role reversal and you left the house and I stayed home and went to work. It's very strange. Very strange. But I survived and I only had a minor delay in Atlanta, which did provide me with the opportunity to have some barbecue. So it all worked out, I guess. Oh, all for the best. All for the best. A, a mechanical delay and then a weather delay. So that's always nice when you layer them on top of one another. Well, hopefully none of that on my trip this weekend on uh, Spirit and United to go visit uh, you in Chicago to find a hot dog during National Hot Dog Week. It turns out that this fell into our laps that you're going to come to Chicago for the day and eat hot dogs as National Hot Dog Week wraps up. So it was uh, serendipitous. Had no idea. Serendipitous hot dogs, my friend. I'm flying out there in luxury on Spirit in their big front seat. So, you know, pretty good Saturday. Mm-hmm. Big front seat, hot dogs, airplanes. I mean, you find me a better day. Might even throw in some beer. Whoa. I know. All right then. So it's been a busy couple weeks. Extremely. I know I know we say this every every episode. This time we mean it. But this though, time for we real. really mean it. Because I did some flying and a bunch of people spent upwards of a trillion dollars on some airplanes. Pocket change. Pocket change, really. You know, a couple billion here, a couple billion there. Pretty soon we're talking about real money. So let's talk about the the big identity news. Yes. This one is still taking me a long time to get used to. I'm still out there and won't be for a long time. <laughs> so the Bombardier C-Series, CS300, is now the Airbus A220-300. Ugh. Right, I, I can't process that one. And the CS100 is the A220-100. And just typing that on my keyboard, my brain stops every time and it doesn't finish. It's like, wait a minute, these numbers don't go together. 220, no, you, you must have meant 330, surely. <laughs> you mean 320. No, 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 no. I mean 220. Yeah, so 220-300 is the, the CS3, was the CS300, is the A220-300. So it's a, a welcoming to the family by Airbus, of course, and a, a marketing thing and, and a renaming and an identity thing and, and all that good fun stuff. But I'm interested, and I haven't found this out yet, uh, whether or not the ICAO type code will change. Because as of now, you know, the commercial distinction is it's an Airbus A220, but it's still BSC-3. Is there precedent for an already in-service aircraft to change designations like that? I can't think of any. The closest, the kind of similarities elude me. I mean, the the MD-10 is still the avionics upgrade to the DC-10 to have you know type commonality with the MD-11. It's still a DC-10 as far as you know the the ICAO type codes are concerned. So I don't know if there's ever been cause. And this, the seven one seven was was never officially flown or, or um, in service as the MD ninety five was it? Right, no, because I, I think it got moved over before it entered service. I'm trying to see the DC. If there's going to be one, it's got to be in the DC line. 
Yeah, most likely. But I, I don't know if in modern aviation history there's ever been an aircraft that's changed designations like that. And it's it's a lot of work. Airlines, the the uh, scheduling departments, and and all that they have to basically they'll have to pick a new code. So it'll go from CS three to A two two zero and all the global schedules, and that's a big change. Yeah. So I mean the and I don't know if. You know how it'll be reflected in you know the commercial figuring out, but I, I assume that will that will also change somehow. But um, essentially, the, work, the aircraft itself is not changing. It is still the C series you know and love. If you know and love the C series, I do. But it's uh, the A two twenty is going to take a lot of getting used to. It'll be a while before you know that that kind of fades, if it ever does, because I know that a lot of people. In the aviation world, tend to stick with things. Uh, yes, as I still fly Northwest, connecting to Continental. There you go. I mean, there are people who work for the successor airlines to both of those companies who refuse to acknowledge that they work for a different company. I mean, how how long after the merger between United and Continental were there were there flight crews and, and cabin crews saying, you know, welcome a, this, you know, formerly proud or Probably former Continental crew and, and things like Their that. Their flight attendants still aren't even the mer- the unions aren't even merged or are they're not even complete. I, I they just announced that in the earnings call today that I think in the next six months they'll finally United and Continental crews will be just united. And we're how many years after the merger? Fifty, maybe fifty five. <laughs> it I seems like decades. It, it feels very long time. Yeah, so I mean that there's a lot of history built into the airline industry and the aviation industry. So we'll we'll see how long it takes us to get through that. Right. So meanwhile, there is a very big air show going on. And how do we pronounce the name? In our last episode, we said we would be talking about Farnborough, and we got some mail, and we're told that the correct pronunciation from from someone who's from the area, it, it's pronounced. And this was written to us, so I'm going to probably get it wrong again, but it, it's pronounced Farnborough. Sure, sure. So, sure. what happened in Farnborough this week? Exactly. There were some orders for There were a lot of orders. Airplanes. At, and as we did uh, for the Paris Air Show last year, I'm relying on Flight Global's excellent analysis. And how many orders do you think there were? I will say, because I, I too can read, there were 1,266 new orders or interests in ordering an airplane because you and I could have you know, signed a letter of intent for all we That's know. That's true. That's true. So we'll, we'll get to that. But there were 1,060 order commitments, 206 options. Options are basically additional aircraft on top of firm orders that you can choose to exercise or not at a later date. And this was the most aircraft sold at an air show since way back in Paris in 2013. Actually, Paris last year was just a couple dozen shy of, of where we were this year and much bigger than Farnborough 2016. The last time it was out there, it's 742. This year's 1266. But the Boeing 737 MAX really swept everything else away. They had Boeing claim 433 orders and options for the 73 MAX, 259 for the A320neo family, Embraer had um, a surprising showing for the E1 series, 230, I think Republic ordered. How many of these things? Yeah, Republic ordered uh, 100 firm, 100 optioned. 
for the E1. The E2 the, the only e, sold yeah, just 70. Just the, e the E175. Right. Regular and the, uh, E175. the E2 sold 70 frames. Airbus sold, or really, let's call, let's let's put these on the book for Bombardier still. The A220 sold 60 aircraft. Only one order, though. All 60 were to one to Moxie or whatever. They soon to be named. Assumed it, it, to be it named. It won't be called US Moxie Airlines when Star. it actually launches, but we're calling it Moxie now because that's what somebody called it at one point, and then they said, no, that's we're not going to call it that. So that is David Nealman's startup US Airline. David Nealman, of course, the founder of JetBlue Azul down in uh, Brazil and a very large stakeholder in ta- Portugal. So he's basically going to do JetBlue 2.0 in the US and do all the things that JetBlue never got around to do, like transatlantic flying. And maybe they'll be doing that with the Airbus A220, formerly known as the Bombardier CS300. And also, interestingly, the 777 Freighter had uh, a yeah. good showing. Yeah, it picked up quite a few orders. Cargo Logic with 29. DHL picked up 14 plus 7. And then Qatar Airways, which <laughs> I love this, they ordered five 777 Freighters. And then they put out a tweet that said, We've stolen the limelight. At Farnborough with five triple seven freighters, and then later in the day they tweeted again, but they misidentified the aircraft as a triple seven three hundred ER freighter. Ooh, which, that'd be a cool airplane. Well, which knowing Qatar, you know, I wasn't trying to be snarky, but, but I, I, you know, I put the question to Twitter: Is this? Could they do it? Did I miss something? Did Boeing and Qatar launch the triple seven three hundred ER freighter because that would be an I mean, awesome. I mean, Carl Baker, he could just you know snap his fingers and there we go. They That's put what a I'm cargo saying. Cargo door and a three hundred ER. And they took the they deleted the tweet later in the day, so I, I assume it was just a typo. But I, I was I was like, huh? That what? I mean, I know that the UK is a few hours ahead of me, and and I woke up after most of the show had happened on day one. But what did I miss? So not not as exciting as it could have been. And as you mentioned, there were almost 300 orders from undisclosed customers ranging from just a few, two for an E195E2, all the way up to 80 A320neos. Somebody ordered them somewhere. I don't know who, but technically they're not not really in order. They're a letter of intent, an MOU. So maybe they get delivered one day, maybe not, but that's a ton of of unknown buyers. And I, I forget who it was. I think it was Bloomberg, maybe not Bloomberg. I don't want to say the, the wrong name, but there were rumors that some purchasers did not want to disclose who they were because they didn't want to aggravate any specific countries in North America wedged between Canada and Mexico and start a trade war of some sort. I thought that was very interesting. Interesting. I hadn't seen that. One of the letters of intent that I found the most interesting was that Uganda Airlines becomes yes, the, the first the and only customer for the A330-800. So, they're uh, with- not the first. Hawaiian had orders for the A330-800neo, which they recently converted the their scrapped, scrapped for uh, the 787. But yeah, the, the second they, first, I should say. I guess is they are now the only customer on planet Earth for the A330 800 Neo, and I would presume they're going to take the one test frame that's that Airbus currently has built. One and plus I, one. And somebody says that one of the Hawaiian frames is already in production, so they'll just get that one. But 
that strikes me as just weird. I, they probably got a screaming hot deal on it because I don't know any airline in the world who would want to be the sole operator of an aircraft. That's a terrible well, I idea. Mean, and we'll talk about this a little bit later in the show when when we talk about the my trip on the A330 Neo, the the 900 that they've been flying around on on their route proving tour. But the the idea is that the plane is mostly this. I mean, vastly the same. So there, there are very few, you know, differences in the aircraft, which, right. which makes Unlike it the difference between the seven eight seven eight and nine, which are extremely different aircraft. Right, they're they're almost completely different airplanes when you when you're talking about the the structural, you know, systems levels, but the eight hundred and the nine hundred eight three thirty that that's a bit of a different story. So it's interesting that they're going to take these. They also ordered a, a firm order. Uganda Airways did. Airlines took four CRJ nine hundreds. And those were the only orders Bombardier racked up during the show. Yeah. So even yeah. Comac scored more with twenty the ARJs, which is yeah. shocking. I thought I figured when I saw Comac it would be the C nine one nine, but the AR people are buying the ARJ is just fascinating to well, me. Well, I mean, you know, it's you have to look at it this way. There's still demand for DC nines and MD eighties. So if there's still demand for those, why wouldn't there be demand for the ARJ twenty one? Uh, because it's not a good airplane. But it's the same airplane. Eh, that's true. They did steal most of the design <laughs> and everything. <laughs> it, I just just look. And we talked about this when we had Seth on. I mean, just it's you know it's the same plane. Yeah. Also, ATR sold eight planes, so ATR outsold Bombardier, which is not great. So some of the the big orders going into sending order Republic, the one hundred plus one hundred for the E one seventy five E one. Then the second biggest order is undisclosed for the A320 Neo. Then right under that, Vietjet Air signed for 8737 MAX 10. Jet Airways yet again, 737 MAX 875, another 75 undisclosed orders for the A320 Neo. Then you have Moxie with the A220. Then it goes and descending, gets a little boring. The smallest orders, Salam Air ordered one A320 Neo and Hokkaido Air Systems ordered one ATR42600. But here's the best part of it. It was an option. Oh, yeah. That is an they're option. Like, yeah, okay. We'll take it. Oh, Maybe. yeah. They, I see they ordered two with an option for one. So, they're playing the small game. I'm interested about who this undisclosed Spanish customer for the E195 E2 is. I don't know. And why is it only – is it It must be a, a lessor maybe? It's an option. So, they have two – I mean, we could do some digging on this. Well, they also out. have a, an LOI on top of the option. but uh, Right. Yeah. Oh, also United Airlines, uh, four additional 7879s. Oh, we didn't mention uh, the 747-8 freighter order. While we're talking about cargo, I thought the interesting – there was quite a bit of demand, I mean, relatively speaking, from GCAS for the 737-800 BCFs, the Boeing converted freighters. That's right. When I tweeted out Flight Global's order breakdown, there's 35 NGs on the list and people responded like, well, who's ordering the NG and how are they even able to do that? Well, they're actually the BCF, the Boeing converted freighters. And I think West Atlantic was the first, they took the first 737-800 converted freighter two or three months ago now and it's in service. So it's, I mean, I think that's one of the often overlooked things in the air cargo market is you have all of these passenger planes that are relatively easily converted 
into freighters. I mean, just look at the production line of former American Air 767s being hauled out of the desert, oh, sent to everywhere. Israel, chopped up, and then sent back for uh, Amazon Prime Air. Yeah, there's a huge demand for them, which is funny because I guess the the cargo industry is finally rebounding a bit. Well, I was watching – it was a good interview on the part of the – it was the the – cargo director from Bolgen Yeprek. And he was talking with someone on the from the BBC who, if I was near him, I, I would have possibly punched him in the face because he was so annoying to listen to. But that's not the point. The point is that he was talking about how, you know, the air cargo market, you know, is on this huge, you know, it's kind of this huge swing. It's disproportionately affected positively and negatively by the economy. And so he was talking about, you know, do they have is is there too much or too little. And he said that it's an interesting balance right now. But the one thing was, is that he was asking about, and you alluded to this a little bit earlier, with the economic uncertainty that tariffs being applied between you know, the United States and the European Union and China and things like that. And he said, in the short term, we benefit from that uncertainty because things are happening very quickly and air cargo is able to benefit well from that. Long term, it's terrible for everyone's business and I want it to stop. And I, I thought that was a very interesting way of looking at it. So, speaking of uncertainty, yes. why don't you tell us about the Airbus and Boeing commercial aircraft 20-year outlook that I totally didn't look at. These are very certain numbers. Nothing can change these. It's, no, nothing. Uh, nothing at all. It's gonna not not one tweet from our our president or anything can definitely change the outlook of the future. The, these nope. numbers are locked in stone. So anyway, both Airbus and Boeing produce large, very pretty reports that cover a twenty-year forward-looking view of the air transport sector. That basically say this is how quickly. The market's going to grow. This is how many planes we're going to have to produce over the next 20 years. And this is the amount of money we think, uh, the value of the aircraft that we're going to sell over the next 20 years. There's a bit of uncertainty because you're you know, forecasting growth over a 20-year period. So there's a bit of a margin of error. But the idea of the forecast is actually you know, fairly interesting to get a good look about how these two behemoths are looking at the market you know, for a 20-year period. So Boeing calls theirs the commercial market outlook and Airbus calls theirs the global market forecast. And we'll put a link in the show notes to both of those so that you can, if you're interested, read them a bit more closely. But the very high-level overview top line is that Airbus says that the global market needs 37,400 new aircraft over the next 20 years, between 2018 and 2037. Boeing thinks that it's going to need to deliver 42,730. So there's an interesting discrepancy there. But I'm not sure if it's a discrepancy because of how they break them down. So Airbus breaks it down into small, medium, large, and extra large, whereas Boeing breaks it down to regional, single aisle, wide body, and freighters. So Airbus is saying that they're going to, to break things down into the passenger aircraft are small, medium, large, and extra large, and then the freighter aircraft are even broken out even further. So Airbus says, and they also break them down all by geographic geographic area. So Boeing's projecting 2,300 regional jet aircraft, 31,000 
360 single aisle aircraft, 8,070 wide body aircraft, and 980 freighters. So all with a market value roughly $6.3 trillion. Airbus is projecting $5.9 trillion. So a little bit of some money involved. A little bit. And we should reconvene in 20 years and check their math. <laughs> See exactly how many aircraft they delivered. But they're looking at traffic to more than double over you know, the, the time period and to require, you know, if we split the difference, 40,000 more airplanes to be delivered. Where, where do we put all those airplanes? Well, I mean, it's not 40,000 additional airplanes. No, this is, most of that is replacement, but a lot of it is still expansion. Right. And, and so that I think is the very interesting, you know, very, very interesting area. I mean, if you're looking, you know, regional deliveries, you're talking about, you know, vast inputs into the Asia, you know Asia Pacific so looking at tons you know Airbus is saying they're going to need nearly 13,000 small aircraft so that's up to 200 seats in the Asia Pacific region and Europe 5,000 Latin America 2400 North America 5,000 I mean you know it's 28,000 total small aircraft you know uh, 1300 extra large aircraft which is interesting because the extra large aircraft for Airbus is the at this point A380 and A350 1000 so interesting outlook like Jason said there's a lot between now and then but it's always interesting to see where Airbus and Boeing think the market is going over the next 20 years well, I'll ask Siri to set a reminder for July 2038 to see how accurate these numbers were. And Siri will probably screw that up somehow. Probably. That or she'll become you know, sentient by then and kill us all. Fair enough. Let's discuss one more thing related to the Fernbur air show, and then we will take a quick break and, and come back and talk about uh, some other stuff. It's but a big thing though. It's, it's a very big thing. It's a four engine thing that will be there tomorrow for the beginning of the public air show portion of the, the Farnborough air show. But the first high fly A380 is out of paint and looking very fishy. Fishy. Yeah. So high fly is. I'm not sure it's the founder or someone who uh, is a major supporter. Of. Yeah, is also started the 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 Mirpuri Foundation, which is a an environmental foundation. And so, two of their aircraft now, an A330 and now the A380, feature a livery that benefits this foundation. And so, the A380 is now in a Save the Coral Reefs livery, very very aquamarine, shall we say? It's very blue. It's uh, yeah. It's got little fish and coral all over it. It's very nice. Yeah, so they're flying that up from Malta tomorrow, the nineteenth of July, and it will be at the Farnborough Air Show. So we'll get more someone, photos then. Someone had asked me a good question. Highfly's website they they have a house livery, a Highfly livery, right? But is it actually on any aircraft? Because I know most of their aircraft are either all white or. Have remnants or what of whatever airline it assumed the aircraft Arc from, Air. like their exactly like yeah. their A three forty five hundreds have a, a washed out Eric Air from Nigeria livery. Do they have an aircraft in high fly livery? Don't I don't think, think so. so. And I know the I know the house livery to which you refer, and I don't think they do. I don't know if they've ever had an aircraft in their own livery. I mean the. No, <laughs> I mean, I, I, 
I can't think of anything that I've ever seen that has the high fly livery on it. So no, I don't know. Well, anyway, we'll go back to see this and, uh, and giant out. fishy looking A380 on a Norwegian flight near you, probably. <laughs> probably sometime soon. All right, let's take a quick break and we'll come back. We'll talk about a bunch of stuff, including what I got up to on the A330-900, Ryanair is picking fights on the internet, and- um, Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. And we'll go to China for some some interesting gaseous news. <sighs> yeah. All right, so we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. And we are back, ready to talk about the A330 NEO's route-proving tours, or or function and reliability tests, as we have been informed. It's a very um, fancy name. Yeah, it is a very fancy name for making sure the plane works. That's good. Does it? It does. It does. It was actually, and we'll get into this a little bit more with, while we were on the flight, I sat down with Ned Russell from Flight Global, who was also also there for the day. And we, we talked about the aircraft a little bit. But suffice it to say, it, it works. The interesting thing about the plane is that it's not really interesting from a- That from, is interesting. From an aviation perspective, it's an A330. Ned and I focused on the, the actual aircraft itself from a kind of a customer perspective. So we'll, we'll save that part of the discussion for, for Ned. But I was talking with the pilots- after the flight, after we we flew from Chicago to Atlanta, so I didn't get you know the long haul experience, but I was talking with the pilots after the flight, and they were talking about how the flight deck is exactly the same. There are no changes. And that is very much on purpose. Very, very much on purpose. You can throw an Airbus pilot who flies the A330, flies the A340, flies the A350, and Lufthansa is actually working on a conversion course for the A380. And they and I think they may have just completed their first class where you can have a pilot who has a, a type rating across the A330, 40, 50, 80, and, and including the, the NEOs. So it's something that they've very, very consciously done. That said, there are some interesting because the, the aircraft is fly by air, there are some interesting software improvements to the handling of the aircraft. And so the captain who's been working on the NEO program for a few years now was talking about there's no you know physical difference to, to flying the aircraft, but the handling is much more responsive in the role. So he was saying that, that crosswind landings are much easier to handle now in, in the 800, I guess, and the 900, specifically the one that we were on. And he was talking about how there, there's more roll authority. And so you end up with, um, you don't have to, um, when you're crabbing into the crosswind, uh, kind of you know flying towards the runway, but at an angle to it and getting ready to land, that when you shift the plane back into the center line, the aircraft, the wing has a tendency to dip. And, and so the A330neo's software kind of calculates that against itself and makes it a bit easier to manage that it was one of the things that he was talking about. So that, that was pretty interesting and it would be nice to to see that kind of in action when they when the videos the inevitable inevitable videos at, at some airport in Europe with a you know massive crosswind component. Of course. We don't we don't get those videos here in the States. We really don't. Well it 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 doesn't help that, you know, the the well 
that's a whole nother podcast that's complaining about. Yeah, we'll, you know, we'll have to get someone else to explain that whole thing. Spotting in, in the US. But now I think it would be good to we'll go to me and Ned on the aircraft and we're going to talk a little bit about the A330neo from a customer perspective and and some of the differences or not so differences that that Airbus has has really brought to. So we Jason and I will be back in in just a few moments. I am joined by Ned Russell of Flight Global and we are both aboard the A330neo route proving tour flying from Chicago to Atlanta. Ned, thanks for joining. Thanks Ian. Pleasure to be here. So we're on board the first production A330neo that's going to be delivered to TAP Portugal in in September after the route proving tour is concluded and everybody signs off on the certification yeah. and things like that. I just wanted to get your impressions of the aircraft. It's an A330 Ian. <laughs> that, that is correct. <laughs> the aircraft is, the, the changes are pretty much just the engines, the winglets, and a few things in the wing they were talking about. So it feels like an A330. It looks like an A330. I think it is an A330. <laughs> I think that that is a, a true story. The thing comparing to the, well, the thing that strikes me about the interior of the aircraft is the reduced noise volume compared yeah. to the, the A330 CEO. Right. Especially with the, the airspace cabin and the redesign they've done inside. I, I think that's the biggest takeaway as far as a, a passenger is concerned. Yeah, definitely. The cabin is definitely updated compared to the old A330s. It, it's reminiscent. It's very similar to the A350, I would say. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You know, the, the cabin carries over from the yes. A350. Yes. So it's, it's basically updating the A330 to the A350's cabin right. facilities and then adding a few a few touches for that. And then as far as the, yeah, the, the aircraft is concerned, the the engines are new. The Rolls-Royce Trent 7000, which gives 11% fuel burn increase or, or decrease. Let's hope it's not an increase. <laughs> improvement. Improvement over the current. And then there's you know the elongated wing, some belly fairing readjustments, and then the new, I would say, sharp-looking shark boat. Yes. Uh, so it, it's a good-looking aircraft. They, they've given it the raccoon mask, yeah. of course. Which, so you can pick it out anywhere at the yeah, airport exactly. back and exactly. jump pops. So you'll always know, you know what the aircraft is. But some of the, the more interesting touches, I think, were the, the addition of the, the SpaceFox bathroom. Yeah. Or laboratory. Sorry, it's not a bathroom on an airplane. Ian and I tried to open the center divider. I, I, I succeeded like later on. Oh, yes. Yes, I succeeded I later on. <laughs> I, I have not broken a $295 million aircraft. <laughs> Thankfully very much. But the space in the we're, – we're recording in center bank of seats in the economy cabin. That you're, what, 5'11", uh, I'm 5'7 on a good day, and we're both fairly comfortable. Oh, yeah, it's, uh, it's actually remarkably so, spacious. you know, eight, nine hours on this aircraft, not a problem from what I've seen. The, the Recaro seats are, are throughout this tap yeah. cabin. Comfortable. Uh, nice and they're pretty comfortable. The touchscreen responsiveness has been, you know, fairly impressive. Very on point. And so, you know, overall impressed with the cabin, but overall... It's an A330. Exactly. Yeah. You know, will passengers notice a difference? Yes. Probably. Uh, it, you know, by design. But they'll also notice the commonality throughout. Right. And that's what Airbus was is talking about, you know, commonality, especially between the 350 and the 330 as their various wide-body models. You know, right. So passengers going to, I mean, the idea is the passenger wouldn't know, which scary thought to me that you wouldn't know what kind of aircraft you're on. But right, yeah. right. But but a lot of people don't. That's true. A lot of people even don't know what airline they're on. <laughs> so that, that's, a, that's a whole other question, I guess. Yeah. But one of the other, we're mentioning commonality. I mean, commonality for pilots is the same as well. I mean, it, it's a single type rating throughout the wide body 
series. That's what they're, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, fly-by-wire is as fly-by-wire does. Right. So it's, you know, a good thing if you're an operator, you're looking for, you know, kind of improved efficiencies. That's one way to get them to your, your exactly. pilot crew, right? your pilot uh, training. So that's one of the interesting things that I think they're trying to bring. Airbus has um, said that they're targeting the, the A330neo market to obviously current A330 operators right. as a replacement aircraft, or a one-to-one replacement aircraft. But one of the things that they mentioned in conversation has been that they're also targeting the 767 and 777-200ER yes. replacement market. And that's been mentioned a few times, and we're on board with representatives from a uh, Chicago-based carrier. Wonder what one? Yeah, (laughs) we'll we'll leave that to the imagination. Maybe mentioned later on. But how realistic do you think that target is? The the seven six seven triple seven two hundred replacement. I think the seven six seven replacement. It's going to be a tough sell for Airbus. You already saw American replace their seven six sevens with seven eight seven eights. The two other major U.S. carriers, United and Delta, they've got a few years to decide. They're not eager, but. 767, the... Well, I mean, look, Delta just refit its first yeah, exactly. 200. Yeah. So they've, they they've, went into service this week. Right. <laughs> Delta's been very firm. They don't want an aircraft with too much capability. Right. You look at the 900 Neo, and that can fly 7,000 nautical miles, give or take. Delta's 767s fly on average 3,800 nautical miles. So there's a lot of additional capability there. Now, Airbus was telling me that you can modify the neo so it's it's a lower weight has less range but does delta want to do that you know it's going to be one of those things you do on a sub fleet of 10 or 15 aircraft that are specialized and, and delta has historically been very hesitant to take on a new aircraft is right right i mean it's sort of surprising that bastion is out there talking about having interest in launching the nma after richard anderson for years said you know, I don't have the. I, <laughs> I don't want that risk on my balance sheet. So, so it'll be interesting to see how Airbus can kind of overcome those headwinds to, right. to get into. Right. Welcome back from me to me. And now I'm back with Jason in the present day. So basically, it's like the shift from the A320 to the A320 Neo. The A330 to A330 Neo, the people on the plane probably aren't going to notice anything different. Well, I feel like the A330. 20 to the A320neo is actually a much bigger difference because of the kind of crunch that came along with the Neo on a lot of the airlines. The one thing I will say about TAP's interior was that it was comfortable. You know, I mean, obviously the business class was comfortable. The the premium economy was quite nice, and and even the economy was you know not bad. You could do eight or nine hours. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I I go out of my way to fly on in. A330 if I'm flying long haul or a 767 because the seats are are better. I avoid entirely 777s or 787s if I'm in economy because I just don't want to put up with their narrow seats. Yeah, I mean and and I I don't blame you at all. And it was a, a nice configuration in the back is a, it's a nice 242 configuration which yeah, is uh, uh, you know typical, I, I liked it. Typical nice Airbus product. Yeah, so I mean new things all around and it's so new that it's not new at all. Yeah, I mean, it didn't break really anything. The, did yeah. you? Well, I tried. I, I tried. So Airbus has the the Space Flex Lavatory, which is a 
an interesting laboratory in, on on TAPS A330. It was in the back, and basically the cabin crew. So if you have a passenger with reduced mobility, either requiring a wheelchair or or some type of you know mobility assisted device, they can turn the two rear lavatories of the aircraft into a single lavatory, basically through the push of a button and the flick of a switch. And the door kind of you know folds into itself and, and goes away. There, the wall folds into itself and goes away. It, it took me a minute or so to. I was told about that, and so I said, "Well, and I figured out." So it took me a couple of tries to figure it out, and I, I didn't break it, but I tried my best. So let's talk about Ryanair. Ryanair. They're not having a good week. No. Why not? <laughs> well, let's see. They've got a cabin crew strike coming up on the twenty fifth and twenty sixth of July, I believe. That's going to cancel three hundred flights. So that's definitely not good. And that comes uh, uh, <laughs> during the same summer that they've been bitching nonstop about all the strikes in France impacting their operation. Well, it's, it's interesting because they've been really focusing on, you know, the French strikes have, have really, you know, kind of existed, but they've taken this tact of focusing on the air traffic control staffing levels as affecting Ryanair flights. And Last week, Ryanair said, you know, staffing levels in the UK and France and I think it was Belgium or there was a third country involved that, you know, is forcing us to cancel flights. And and Nats, the air navigation service provider for the UK, was like, no. And so they got into it and started trading links to reports back and forth. And it was a very odd thing to see. A very large airline and the air navigation service provider kind of going at it publicly on Twitter. It was it's almost surreal. Yeah, I can't imagine that happening in the US with the FAA. Well, I, I can't imagine the FAA being coordinated enough to respond to an airline. I can't imagine the FAA ever being properly staffed in air traffic control either. So there we go. That's a whole nother story, I think. But it was just very interesting to me to see the whole thing play out on Twitter. Yeah. Rather, that's I mean, weird. you know, press releases maybe. You know, but it was very you know strange to see the whole, the whole thing play play out. Hey, on that's the best way to get down to the people. If an airline's saying one thing, you know, is tr- false, the best way to refute it is on Twitter. No, no one reads a press release. You know, it's been very interesting to see you know air navigation service providers get into Twitter. Nats especially has you know wholeheartedly jumped in and, and done I think a really fine job on social media in general. Euro Control is also you know fairly good. The FAA has been slow. To, uh, I mean, fun- I mean, they put out some good news pieces and things like that, and you know, the day's outlook and things like that. But they don't really respond a lot, as I would like to perhaps see them do. But that's we'll see if that ever happens. Anyway, one of the other things that happened this week or last week, really, was the Royal International Air Tattoo, which sounds. If you don't know what it is, it, it's not an actual tattoo, though. Maybe somebody does have. Not the point. Anyway, General Atomics has a unmanned aerial vehicle, unmanned aerial system, drone, remote piloted aircraft system, whatever you want to call it. Flying thingy with no person in it. There is no person inside. And it's called the Sky Guardian. And it was the first, we'll call it drone, just for short, to fly in unsegregated commercial airspace by itself across the Atlantic Ocean. So it flew from Grand Forks, North Dakota, where a couple companies have basically set up a a shadow airport to the Grand Forks airport, uh, specifically for unmanned aerial testing. And it flew to Fairford, where Riyadh is held every year. Now, when we say it was flying 
on its own? Was it being remotely piloted or did it have its route programmed and it just went on and did its thing? So the information that the General Atomics put out was that it was an automatic takeoff and landing. And there were people, I don't know if they were actively piloting it, but there were obviously people doing things to make sure that nothing went wrong, if that makes any sense. So I'm not sure if it was just following a program out at a prescribed time or if it was being piloted, though it did kind of you know do some circling for for photograph aerial photography and things like that. So I assume at that point it was probably being you know piloted right. But it was the most interesting part is it flew through commercial airspace and and that was the the first time it did. It flew below the nat tracks, but just. So that was something interesting. And once it you know left the US and, and Canada and got over to the UK, it was in with other traffic as well. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Not cool. The Air China pilot who caused an emergency descent. Yeah. This was uh, high up on the list of stuff you should never do if you're at all ever involved with flying an airplane so, or cabin crew or anything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it turns out that this pilot – on an Air China uh, 737. Well, ex-pilot. Yeah, ex-pilot. He was a pilot at the time, was using an electronic cigarette, vaping, whatever you want to call it, and tried to turn off a fan that moves the air around the, the flight deck in the cabin and accidentally turned off the air conditioning to the aircraft. Brilliant. Yeah. And so this gave a pressurization warning, which then led to an emergency descent. They brought the aircraft down, you know, not, um, you know, from cruising altitude below, I I think they made it down to 14,000 feet before they figured out what was going on and then climbed back up to, I think, 26,000 feet and and made a, you know, just normal flight. Right. Which is the most egregious thing because they had deployed or the oxygen masks in the cabin had been deployed and used up basically while they were on their descent. And they once again climbed back up to altitude or in altitude where they were a pressurized aircraft. And had there been an actual depressurization event when they went back up, that that was it. Passengers would not have had access to oxygen because they only have a, was it a five or six minute supply on the oxygen generator? There's not yeah, much. It's, it's not a whole lot. No, I mean, so you the, know, the, if something were to happen uh, again. Right. So the big ruckus was that uh, these pilots did not divert once they deployed the oxygen mass. They, they continued on to their destination and they are no longer pilots. They had their uh, license taken away by China and Air China was fined. And I think this one is a little weird, but their 737 capacity reduced by 10% as a punishment. As a punishment. I, or, or something. Well, I don't know how it's related, but the issue is that their capacity has been reduced and they have to undertake a safety course. So I'm not sure if it's that capacity reduction is intended to be the pilots or, or crew or whatever are contributing to the safety course during that reduction. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure how that ties together. Right. But smoking uh, by, by Chinese crews is, is definitely a thing because I have suspected it on uh, on one of my flights on a mainland Chinese airline as well. I, I know I smelt it. You don't not know what that smell is. I didn't know where it was coming from, but it is a thing. And it, it's any pilot or any cabin crew 
or anyone on board the aircraft ever caught smoking should be immediately banned for life from an airplane. And that's uh, pretty much what happened to these guys. Yeah, I just don't understand it. It's like the one thing that I isn't drilled. I mean, anyway. Fire bad. Fire bad. (laughs) Even even if this is vaping, it's same difference. Yeah, it's just, you know, and the fact that he accidentally turned off the, and that's boggles my mind. But let's close out a rather busy couple of weeks with some some numbers and some highlights. I was going to talk about how we broke another record and tracked the most flights ever. And I was going to talk about that we had done that last Friday, but then I checked today's numbers, Wednesday, July 18th, and it turns out we broke the record again. What? Um, I know. On so, a Wednesday? On a Wednesday. 205,900 and change flights, Wednesday, July 18th. And and so every year we get a big ramp up and around the end of August is usually when we pack uh, track the peak number of flights. Jason, can you tell me the least traveled day of the year? The least traveled day of the year? The day that uh, we always track the least number of flights. Christmas or New Year's Day? Christmas Day. That Aha. is correct. Yes. So Christmas Day 2016 was the last day that we ever tracked fewer than 100,000 flights. And last year, Christmas 2017, we only tracked 111,000. So it, it's the least travel day of the year. It doesn't hurt that uh, a few you know carriers don't operate on Christmas. That always you know impacts the numbers. And everyone who's traveling for Christmas is already, I hope, where they're going. So but it'll be interesting to see what the the peak number actually ends up being. Last year it was 190,003. So this year I mean we're already at, you know, 206,000 mid-July. So we still have really another month of of growth to see how that affects uh, yeah, how that affects and the overall numbers. I'm just looking at uh, my ADSB receiver that I feed to flight radar and my little receiver that you know is in the attic of uh, my <laughs> parents' place. Back in uh, Long Island, it's not where it should be, but even that one saw 963 aircraft today. That's only, I guess, Stockholm's today. But Wednesday, according to your data, it saw 3,687 aircraft, which is more than any day that I can see in this chart in the last seven days. So today was indeed very busy. I think that Nats in the UK said that they're expecting this Friday either tomorrow or Friday to be their their busiest day of the year. And Eurocontrol said that their busiest day of the year was was a few few weeks ago. So I mean the FAA said that their busiest day was two weeks ago. So it's combining all of those busiest days in particular airspace to to find the actual, you know, peak travel day. So we'll see whether or not, you know, we peak in July or or if August holds true. Uh, the end of August holds as the the busiest period of flights. Yeah, we shall see. We shall see. But some real quick numbers to wrap everything up. Heading home from the World Cup, France beat Croatia. Air France beat uh, Croatian Airlines, even though Croatian Airlines had their special livery painted and Air France, well, they actually washed the plane when it landed. They sprayed it with water. They didn't they, wash well, it. You know. So, But, but it's Air France. So yeah, that's, that's as close as you're going to get. So what's interesting though is that we track the number of people who followed the flights of the teams home and 221,770 people followed Air France home, 347,384 followed Croatia home. 
Which is just weird. So there you go. Huh. And a couple hundred thousand people followed maybe a, a goalie from from Rome to I don't understand transfers, but there's a goalie from Rome going to Liverpool or maybe going to Liverpool and, and so a couple hundred thousand people found that very interesting today. So I really I'm don't sure why people track these real. flights. What do you the, get out of it? Well, I mean the knowledge that uh, your team may be better next year. Oh. Okay. I don't know. But uh I'll, but I'll I'm, allow it. it. From a selfish standpoint, I'm very glad that people follow these flights. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> So, it, it, but it, it's fun. You know, no, it's fun. I mean, it's something that you care about and, and something that brings, you know what? It, given all that's going on in the world right now, anything that brings joy to someone's life, I am almost without reservation in support of. So, if following a flight from your, your favorite football team brings joy to your life, then, then by all means, you know, please continue if, if to do so. If that makes you happy, go do it to no end. You can you watch go. the replay of the flight over and over. It, that's what we're here for. Episode 36. We've done three dozen of these. How do you feel? Uh, I'm pretty good. All right. Yeah. We want to know how you folks listening feel. Send us an email, podcast at fr24.com, and let us know uh, what you want to hear, what you like hearing, what you don't like hearing, what you want to hear more of. And if you find this through through iTunes or, or Google, head to your respective podcast listening or podcast delivery methods and, and leave us a rating or a review. We'd love to hear what you think. And, and the more ratings and reviews we get, the more people can find the podcast and, and hear Jason and I talk, which now having said that out loud, I'm not sure if that's a good thing, but, but we'll say it is for now. Yes. And we'll yes, leave it yes. there. So episode 36, thank you all so much for listening, and we will talk to you next time. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with Jason Rubinowitz, and thank you for listening. Thank you.